Welcome, everybody, to episode 61 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by LexBlog. LexBlog is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and is the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. I am your host, Bob Ambrogi. I write my own blog, Law Sites, where I cover legal tech and innovation. I also have a podcast called Law Next, where we talk about legal tech and innovation. And my guest today is Philip Siegel. He is a lawyer, investigator, and financial journalist who's founder and managing member of Charles Griffin Intelligence, a business intelligence firm, and who writes not one but two blogs, The Ethical Investigator and The Divorce Asset Hunter. He's also author of the book, The Art of Fact Investigation, Creative Thinking in the Age of Information Overload. Philip, welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging. Thanks, Bob. Good to be with you. What you do is really interesting. You've, you've probably got the perfect job for somebody who is both a, a, a journalist and a lawyer, uh, but tell us more about what it is you do. What I do is I find facts that lawyers are generally not trained to find. When you go through law school, you're presented with a nice little neat, usually it's an appellate case you start with. There's a nice little fact pattern, a few lines, and then 50 pages of Oliver Wendell Holmes telling you why the facts fit the law this way or that way. And the facts are really just assumed. And then when you get into real life, real litigation, facts are 97% of the problem, of the issue. What happened? Who said what? What can we get? What can we find? And lawyers are not really trained to find those facts. Some law schools teach fact investigation, not many. And I was a lawyer or a law student, having come out of almost 20 years of being a journalist, and I was interested in a fact question when I got to law school and found that no one had ever really written about it. So I wrote about it, had to do with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But I just naturally gravitated toward fact finding as a thing that, that I used to enjoy doing as a, as a journalist. And now I do it as a helper to lawyers who hire our firm. So most of your clients would be lawyers who are looking to investigate a litigation matter or obviously from the name of one of your blogs, a divorce matter or something like that. Yeah, a lot of them are lawyers. We have a, a big chunk of, of clients who are due diligence clients, and they may not be lawyers. They may be investors, family office uh, people, for example, maybe this general counsel of family office, maybe not. And we might run the investigation through the lawyer for, for attorney you know, work product protection. But, but it, it's sometimes just who is this person that we're about to get married to in a business sense? before we lend $5 million. Who is this person? Who's this CEO of a company we're getting ready to recommend if we're hedge fund research people? So it's it's some of that, but then it's a lot of litigation, intellectual property, asset searching for all sorts of different litigators. No point in suing if there's nothing to get if you win a lot of the time. Or we won and now it turns out there's no money, they say. Let's see if we can find some. So it's a, yeah. it's a variety of things. Yeah. You mentioned that you came into law after 20 years in journalism. Tell us about your journalism career. Uh, my journalism career, I went backwards from the, the normal start <laughs> out in, in newspapers and then make it to TV. I started in TV and went the other way. Uh, started out in television, moved to radio, then moved to wires, then newspapers. And then I went to law school and wrote law review 
pieces. So it's and then a book. So it, it's gone completely backwards. But I started out in television and I moved to India and Pakistan when I was uh, in my 20s to freelance because I was interested in those countries and ended up working for NBC in, in Karachi. They moved me to Mexico City and I covered Central America in the late 80s. And I went on air sometimes as well. And then I moved into Canadian television. Canada's where I'm from. And then moved to Hong Kong and went into wires and then newspapers. And then I went to law school when I wanted to become a better business journalist, because that's what I ended up doing for 10 years was business. I figured I would go to law school for a year on this fellowship, then come back to writing. And I never made it back. I finished law school instead and then started doing this. We, we have that in common. I, I actually went to law school hoping to advance my career in journalism uh, as well. I had been in journalism, not not as, as, as deep into it as you were. I was only a year out of college at that point, but I had uh, been a journalism major and I'd been the editor of a little, little newspaper out in Western Massachusetts. And I went back to my uh, college uh, advisor and told him I was going to get a master's in journalism. And he said, don't waste your time on getting a master's in journalism. He said, get a degree that'll teach you something about the world to make you a better reporter. And he suggested law school. And I had never thought of law school. And the, the more I thought about it, the more I thought kind of makes sense, you know, and, uh, but then I, but then I got sucked into being a lawyer for a while. So. Uh, too bad. Yeah. Law school was fun. I loved it because it's just, it's stories. You're reading stories about people's yeah. lives. Yeah. Not wonderfully interesting. And, yeah. and um, I, I, I thought it was just the, the biggest intellectual renaissance I'd ever been through. And it was kind of a shame in one way that you know, when it ended, the choice was go be an associate somewhere you know, and, and uh, be kind of a slave in the big city. But, you know, nobody wanted a 43-year-old first-year associate. They were, they were right not to want me. So it's good yeah. that I found this. This, was, this is the, the job I think I was born to do. Yeah. So you are the founder of, of Charles Griffin, right? Yeah. Charles Griffin Siegel Who is, is my Charles son. Griffin? He's oh. my son. I had to name the yeah. firm something, and I could have named it the Philip Siegel Group, but I thought I'd name it after my son. And it sounds kind of, it's kind of good, you know, it sounds, uh, and I'm, it's not a secret. I, it's, it's somewhere in an interview on our website. It's not, I don't deceive anybody by pretending there's a Charles here, you know. Yeah, it did throw me a little bit. I was looking, I was trying to find it on your, I couldn't find it on your website, but I was trying to find out like, who is Charles Griffin? Yeah, it's my son. But, yeah, and, but it does uh, have a, it is a good name. It's a distinctive name. It's a it great sounds, name. It sounds yeah. classy. So. And so uh, there we go. And, and it's uh, now I can't change it. I, I, the logo. And I used to joke if he ever wanted to come into the business, we wouldn't have to change the stationery. So I don't think he's coming in. He's a sophomore in college. And I don't think this is what he wants to do. But I like the name and it's a, it's a tribute. And, and why not? You got to name it something. Yeah. And, and how much was this something you went right into after law school or how did you what was your path from law school into starting this? In the in third year law school, I realized that nobody really wanted a first year yeah. associate in his early 40s. The career office at Cardozo, where I ended up finishing law school, really could only ever suggest one thing, apply to lots of big law firms. So I, I did yeah. that and none of them wanted me because I didn't fit the, you know, the, the profile. The JAG Corps wanted me, even though I'm not American, but I was a few years too old or two months, a few months too old for them. So I looked around and I thought, hey, maybe investigation, because I had met Jules Kroll. Kroll founded, you know, respectable corporate investigation in the 70s. And I'd met him. He, he made a speech in Hong Kong and, and it sounded great what they did. And I applied for a job with Kroll and I, I didn't even get, I got a call back to come in and visit them. And I visited them and they said, well, we'll call you Monday. You'll come in and arrange a test. I never heard from them. I, I left 12 messages and they never called back. And the guy who got the job told me he left 50 messages. 
But anyway, I kept in mind this might be a, an interesting thing to do. And in law school, I was interested in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I looked at a at all, and I read every case, and I said, "Why? Why is this law not a big deal? It is now, but at the time, they did two prosecutions a year. There were no cases in China, no cases in some of the most corrupt countries." And I said, "This doesn't make any sense." But there, there really wasn't much written about it. So I got out of law school, and I thought facts are interesting. Uh, and what am I going to do? And I got a job at another investigative company. Just I needed a job doing something because I didn't want to go back to Hong Kong, to the to the Wall Street Journal there. And I was right not to want to go back in the short term, in the long term because of what's happened and in the short term because they closed the paper down a year later. So I would have been unemployed. And I, I got a job as an investigator and loved it and then got a different job with a, another, another firm. And that was a British firm. And then when, when Lehman Brothers happened, the British firm closed its New York office and said, goodbye, we're, we're closing the office. And um, my immigration lawyer said, either get a law job for quite a lot of money in the next 30 days or start a business or leave the country. Those are your those are your three choices. So I thought I said I guess I'm starting a business. And that's what I did. So if you're doing a lot of financial investigation, what does your day look like? Is your is your nose stuck in spreadsheets and and databases all day or 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 how do you how do you go about doing this kind of a work? Yes, it's it's stuck in uh, looking at databases, uh, reading old cases, um, I don't. I don't get so much into forensic accounting, so I'm not sitting there looking at accounts as much as public securities records, securities filings, and public records, licenses, liens, uh, property records. Trying to build a profile of of what a person has had, what what a, what the person's business did, who could we call, who would know about this business, what happened to the business. Just before I came on review, I got in a a possible assignment. They want to find out what happened to these two companies that wound up silently 20 years ago, but they're the subject of a of a trust and estates dispute. And we have to go and find out what happened to these companies. It's not enough to say that they've, they've been struck off the register in their state, but what happened? And so we're going to try and, and find that. And so the day is, is spent uh, in front of screens, reading a lot of times, reading scans of cases that are retrieved on site in, in, you know, in a state where you can't get the stuff from online, which, and that's most of them. Uh, and um, even old bankruptcies, you got to go to the archives and pull them out and read them. What's really funny, uh, which I found is that there are a lot of people that are not that good at just sitting and reading for four hours. I, and I used to try and train people in my old jobs. And really, I would say, if you're the sort of person who says, great, the liens from New Jersey are here, let me, let me at them, then this is a job for you. Great. Oh, great. 400 pages of liens. Let's let's dig into them and see what we can find. And if you don't want that, then it's not it's not the job for you. And not everybody relishes, a, 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 you know, doing a puzzle every day. But you're it's always a puzzle. If it weren't a puzzle, your clients could do it themselves. If it were that easy, they wouldn't need you. They call yeah. you for the hard ones. Yeah. Wait, what do your clients or potential clients, lawyers or, or businesses, what what what? Don't they understand about what you do? Some of them think that there's this magical database that I have access to, but they don't. Uh, and I can just plug in somebody's social security number and find out everything they own or every, every dispute they've ever been in, that there's some centralized, uh, you know, NSA-like omnipotent database that I could just get to. And even though I say to them, look, if, if I could get to it, so could you. I mean, I'm a lawyer. So if, if I'm a lawyer and I get 
I can subscribe to this database. So could you. Uh, so what it, and this is why I wrote my book because people don't understand that you have to grab all kinds of pieces of information and then fit them together and they won't come into you in the chronological order you'll put them in, in order to make sense of someone's life. They'll come in in all different, in a whole different order and there'll be big gaps. It's kind of like a cubist painting. You know, you say, well, I think that it looks like a vase over there. I, I think let's, let's for now assume it's a vase. And then what's that thing over there? Well, let's, it could be this, it could be a guitar, or it could be a woman. So you have a lot of balls in the air and you're trying to figure out what's the truth. And a lot of times, like in journalism, you have three or four working theories and you go forward and you can't go down one rabbit hole and never come out if it's the wrong theory, but you have to be able to, you have to be able to come out quickly and change holes. If you, if you go down and you say, that no, doesn't work, then you have to go and, and change. And so it, it requires a kind of a mental agility uh, that, that journalists are practiced at, do, at having. And business people sometimes, and, and sometimes the kinds of people who go to law school and like it and prosper in it want to be shown, okay, this is the law and these are the facts and how does this fit? And in the end, sometimes there is no 100% answer. Mm-hmm. You can't get everything. And I tell people, Google yourself. They think Google is this magical, if it's not a paid database, Google is almost as good. And I tell people, and I've been telling this for 12 years, Google yourself and how much about yourself that you know, and you're, you're the big expert on yourself, how much about yourself that you know is there on Google? If you're an extremely famous person, it could be three or 4%, but for most of us, it's 1% or less. So why in the world would Mr. Miller, the, the guy who had this limited partnership 22 years ago, why would you find a lot of information about him on Google? You might find a little, but you gotta go and dig deeper. And a lot of the information that you find about people is not written down at all. It's in someone's head and you have to interview them. And so it's a it's an exhaustive, not exhausting, but it's an exhaustive kind of process. And it's not one that you do with one eye on the football game while you're, you know, cooking dinner uh, on your phone. You have to really sit and concentrate because you have to draw connections between different sources. The, the databases are terrible at talking to each other. And so you'll sometimes get a little bit of the truth from one and a little bit of truth from the other, and but you, no one is gonna put them together for you. There's no yeah. kayak for databases for a variety of legal and competitive reasons. There, I, I thought it would be, you could make a lot of money if you invented one, but there isn't. So you have to do them yeah. one at a time and then supplement with public records because the databases are riddled with errors. Yeah, there used to be an app, I don't even know if it's still out there, that was called something like, who does Google think I am or something like that. And you type in a name and it would, it would show you this portrait of, of the person based on what Google thinks about that person. You know, 90% of it would be wrong. Yeah. Uh, it was funny because my son just sent me a, a screen cap. He's, he's playing around. Uh, he's a programmer. He's been playing around with the, the uh, open source AI uh, platform that Google developed. They put a GPT for GPT-3, whatever it's called, they have this like playground he can go in and play around. And he asked, he asked it, who is Bob Ambrogi? And it came back that I was the author of some legal treatise of some kind, which I had never heard of and certainly yeah. am not the author of. Uh, so uh, Google, Google. I'm a British idea. film producer. There's a uh, British film producer named Philip Siegel. And, and a lot of the, a lot of the sources think I live in my old house that we sold 12 years ago. And, and there's a simple reason they think that as I continue to use the phone number from that house on my discount cards at the grocery store. <laughs> and so the grocery store keeps selling that phone number and my name to the databases. So they still, they think I still live there. 
even though another database would tell them that that number now belongs to somebody else. But you would just you would get that contradiction, and it's up to the investigator to figure out the difference. So uh, you started this company in two thousand and nine. Uh, at, at what point did uh, blogging enter the picture? Fortunately, pretty early on, two thousand ten, I think it was, maybe eleven. I was uh, speaking at a conference at Stanford Law School where Kevin O'Keefe was also speaking. Aha. Uh-huh. There's and always a Kevin O'Keefe connection somewhere. It, it, well, he is. Uh, <laughs> you know, but the thing about Kevin O'Keefe is he's he's nice. In, in addition to being very smart uh, and, and knowledgeable about, about blogging and, and very intelligent, he's an incredibly nice guy because who was I? Yeah. I was a nobody. And I went up to him after and he convinced, really he convinced me in his talk that if you're going to have a blog, you need to be on Twitter. It's the, it's the other side of having a blog. And I had thought Twitter was garbage and I, I didn't think, and he convinced me I needed Twitter. So I, I talked to him, I said, well, I have a blog, but you've convinced me to go on Twitter. And so he, 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 told, he said, well, what's your blog like? And I told him a little bit and I realized my blog was no good. And my blog was kind of a, a joyless, we're good, they're bad you know, look at us, we're the best, they don't know what they're doing kind of blog. And nobody wants to read that. So <laughs> when you do more in research into marketing, and I should say, I knew nothing about marketing when I started this company. Why should I have? I was a reporter and an editor. And then at my other two jobs as an investigator, the phones rang thanks to somebody else. And they would say, go do this. We just got yeah. this assignment. How do you make yeah. the phone ring? Well, you got to be nice to people and and talk to them and, and make them like you and trust you and all that stuff. And being haranguing in your blog is not, not a good way to do that. So I decided to start a new blog with, with Lexblog. And it was a pretty easy trend. Once I saw what was required, it, it was a fairly good transition. And, um, and then I decided to have another was one. Was this the ethical investigator? That ethical was investigator first? was yeah. first. Yeah. And ethics... But, the, but one of the big marketing problems with, with uh, investigating is that a lot of people have been burned by investigators that, that do a black cube, Harvey Weinstein kind of ultra virus, you know, illegal, unethical kind of investigation. They, they'll trespass, they'll violate the no contact rule. All, they're doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing because they're agents of lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so our selling point, people on social media. Yeah, all that stuff, all that deception and fraud. So record conversations in two party states. I mean, it's go you go on and on and on. So I said, well, being ethical is going to be one of my selling points because I have the same law license at stake as my clients. So mm-hmm. I have every understanding of what you want me to do. You may want me to go get bank records illegally, but I'm not going to get them and pretend I didn't get them, and but then slip them to you because if I get caught, I'm violating the law and could get and could get sanctioned. So I wanted to be the ethical investigator, but then I realized. I was doing some business planning, and I thought the uh, the divorce field is all is evergreen. Unfortunately, people get divorced every year. Good economy, you're bad, and it's continued to be a fifteen percent of our practice divorce asset searching. So I thought a different blog about that, and I called it the Divorce Asset Hunter. And the Divorce Asset Hunter one, from for SEO purposes, I think has been more successful. Uh, you can you can Google divorce asset search or matrimonial asset search. Uh, from time to time. And we've, we've been on page one on Google quite often. Hmm. And if not page one, page two. And we get clients coming in who Google and find us just thanks to this blog. The other the other blog also helps. Although sometimes with blogging, you know, the, the weirdest kind of random thing works out. I, I did a throwaway right. line about asset searches in Cyprus once. And we, and we were number one 
on Google for a year, Cyprus asset search. And we got a lot of clients who wanted to find Russian money in Cyprus. But um, the, it's, it's worked well. And I've, I think I've improved them both as we go on. Uh, yeah. And I've learned some lessons as I go along to make them even more appealing. Yeah. Yeah, I did a I did a blog post. I don't know, it might have been ten years ago or something like that, which I was I was doing some research into what people pay for Westlaw and Lexus, and I had a blog post titled "What do you pay for Westlaw and Lexus?" Yeah, uh, and it was actually like a one line post saying, "You know, I'm researching this. Send me some information if you're willing to share it." That to this day, I think that is my most popular, <laughs> always my one of my most traffic posts because people are always searching, "What do you pay for Westlaw and right. Lexus?" Right. Well, you know, and, uh, when I was preparing for this podcast with you, you'd said, listen to a few of the other podcasts just in this series. So I listened to one and the guy said, who are you? You have to know who you're blogging for. You're blogging for other lawyers. You're blogging for consumers. Who are you blogging for? And I thought, you know, one thing that people always want to know is how much is it going to cost? And so I yeah. did a blog post last week, which has proven yeah. very, very popular. It's, it's why should my investigation cost $2,400? And I break down a typical case it's this much for databases, is this much for this, this much for courthouse, four hours of our time, we do this, we do that. And it's it's all the same stuff I've been writing for a decade, but framed, uh, not look look how smart I am, but how much are you going to pay and what is it and why is it worth it? So the same message comes across. We know what we're doing and, and you know, you can do this if you want, but I even say at the end, you can do all this if you want, but chances are we'll do a better job and and you know, even if it's three thousand bucks and you have a three million dollar investment, that's a tenth of one percent. It's not bad, not bad value. Yeah, and, and you even worked in a Wordle graphic on your uh, post. Uh, yeah, I did. I found a do-it-yourself Wordle, <laughs> and I that, that was fun. I did one Wordle. It's like I, I bought some cryptocurrency a few years ago just to know how it was done. So what are people talking about? And I did I did two Wordles just to know because I was being bombarded with all these Wordle scores right. on Twitter. And right. I wish I could just kind of filter that out. And there's some very interesting people on Twitter, but I don't care how they do at Wordle. And yep. I wish I could filter that out. I don't tell people how I did at the New York Times crossword puzzle today. Who cares? I care. Yeah. That yeah. No one else I cares. care. I care. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I think the other thing is in terms of, uh, I, I think that kind of goes to the question of, of why the divorce one might sometimes be seemingly more popular on Google than the ethical investigator one, because I'm wondering how many people are actually sort of out there searching what are the ethics of investigation? I mean, that that's a little bit more of an esoteric question than how do I track down my uh, right. awful spouse's, uh, you know, hidden assets right. or something. And there's a, there's a ton of investigators out there. And uh, so you, you just have to keep going. I, I mean, I will say uh, the SEO on both of them, I think is probably better than my website. I'm getting my website fixed and redone because it's it's been a while. I neglected it. The blogs were so great, and it's it's so easy on LexBlog. They're all updated, and yeah, they look great. And so I I kind of forgot about the website, and they're interlinked. But I realized my website w was looking a little last generation. So I'm I'm bringing it up yeah. to so it'll look more like the blogs. More yeah. uh, trying to get to WordPress. But I did I did get. Um, I mean, my largest client is a due diligence client, and they found me over the web, and I think probably both blogs would have been would have been responsible for that. And then of course, in the end, you know, you have to try you try out. I mean, it gets you a meeting and then you have to be good on the phone and or in the meeting and then produce. But it right. did get them in the door and uh, I think it's been it's it's money very well spent. But I'm excited that I'm now starting to think about well what could I write 
that and sometimes filling a gap is good. You know, I, the other day, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting around and I wondered what, what, what's the, what are the ethics of using dark web data? It's stolen data, you know, and it's, and there, and people who were caught put stealing stuff from the dark web could be put in prison. And yet we use it. And I put it in our template and, and everyone uses it. So it's wide open. And, so I researched the issue. I realized no one had really written a comprehensive thing about this. So I wrote it because I thought I'm going to write something this week. And very popular. Uh, people loved it. It's, I think it's the most popular. On LinkedIn, I had 1,200 views or something, which for my blog's a lot. And, um, you know, I, I did it because I filled a gap. I just I, so no one else wrote about this. Let me write about it. And that's how journalists think. What can yeah. I What can I do today? I need to write something today. What's going on that? that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one because it also is kind of at the intersection of journalism ethics and legal ethics. Uh, because yeah. I mean, in journalism, it's a common question of, uh, you know, somebody somebody obtains some information uh, through possibly unlawful means um, and then passes it on to you as a journalist and you now have that information and what do you do with it? Does the fact that it was obtained inappropriately uh, influence your ability to use that. Uh, and uh, that, that's the kind of thing that comes up. Well, Pentagon Papers case says yeah. you can, in the U.S. anyway, I had a footnote saying, don't take this as gospel outside the U.S. I don't know what the law is in Britain or France, but yeah. here, if you didn't participate in pilfering it, you can use it. Whether you should use it, want to use it, that's different. Yeah. Or even uh, on a local level. I mean, this comes up all the time. I, I work with newspapers in Massachusetts where I am, and uh, something like uh, somebody leaks uh, grand jury testimony. Now, they weren't supposed to leak it, but once it's out there, it's fair game. Uh, yep. And and uh, the, the reporting source is doing nothing unlawful or probably nothing unethical if they report that leaked transcript or what was in that leaked transcript. But. Um, so I mean, let me, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that sort of marketing issue because you said you had no no background in, in marketing when you started this company in two thousand and nine, uh, and and you you got the blog going. You, you mentioned uh, that, that at least one uh, one client that you know of uh, has come to you because of your presence online. Uh, have there been other impacts from doing this blogging on your building up this business? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot. We've got quite a lot of clients. I said my biggest one came in. Quite a lot still come in over the transom. Yeah. You know, I do no other advertising. I speak. I mean, I go. I speak to the ABA family law section now and again. I've done two. I'm going to do another one. And when my book came out, I I spoke about it all over the country. Uh, and I used to. I did a lot of television at one point, but then things became so divided and politicized in 2016 that every TV appearance, they wanted me to take a side or other of some very contentious political issue. And it didn't, it's not my business. So I, yeah, I stopped yeah. doing that. But I think it's, I think it's part of an entire package. When someone meets you, is referred to you and they look at the website and they see the blogs, which are right there on the, you know, link to, to the website and they see television and they see speeches and they see, I write a lot. I've written law review articles, wrote a whole law journal article about artificial intelligence and law jobs. And I argued that artificial intelligence was great for investigators because it's it's producing so much more data that, that needs parsing, which and, and you know, we're, we're I'm not a big believer in the singularity coming around while I'm alive. Maybe one day. But uh, I think I think 
people who are pretty smart, not people who just do dreary doc review, but smart people, smart people are going to have jobs. And so I, I did that. And I, and I think it's a totality. They want to see what you're like when they, when they read a blog, they can get a sense of what you're like. And they can also get a sense of what you're like when you're you know, on television or radio or doing the, what I'm doing with you right now. And um, a lot of people, when they call, say, well, I've listened to you on your website. I, I trust you. And they say, they tell me they trust me just from watching a little bit of TV or listening to a bit of, you know, a podcast and reading a couple articles or seeing, unfortunately, I'm, I'm proud of my book, but a lot of times someone sees that you wrote a book and they don't read it. But the fact that you finished one is good for some, so <laughs> that's fine. I'm not proud. You know I mean? I, if, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes to, to close the business. And then, you know, the, the gratif the really gratifying thing is when you have repeat clients of which I have quite a few people have come back a year after year. And that's, that's nice because yeah. uh, you don't want to take them in, spit them out unhappy and never hear from them again. Yeah. The, the answer to this next question may seem obvious, but, but how did having that background in journalism help you with your getting, you know, getting started in blogging and building up your blogs? Well, it, in, it was invaluable because when you do, when you do wires, you write very quickly. I'm a very fast writer. It's a muscle that you have, and you mm -hmm. there's muscle memory. When you when, when I st starting out in television, television you're you're wrapping out little briefs. Twenty give me twenty seconds on this. Trying to see some wire, you wrap out a little brief that's going to be readable. On and I'm old enough. I started with an Olympia typewriter on eight ply uh, carbon, and everybody down the rim was smoking cigarillos, and you know <laughs> still those. And and the wire the wire machines actually had paper and made noise. It was fun. Um, and, you know, you, you get good. At, and then when you move to wires, um, you're, you know, Bearings Bank went down in 95. And they said, OK, by the end of the day, we want a piece on how they could have done this. Talk to experts, lawyers, people and and give us, you know, a thousand words on what are the two or three different ways this might have happened that Nick Leeson could have gotten away with this. Just best efforts. So. You can't say, well, I need a couple more days. You got to do it. Mm -hmm. Got to start writing. And then when I was a freelancer for four years with the International Herald Tribune in Hong Kong, if I didn't write, I didn't get paid because I was freelance. I got a little, I got a little retainer for my office. But if I didn't come up with a story idea and wrap it out at the end of the day, no money. Money's fun. It's good having money, you know. So yeah. this was uh, this, and and you you do that year after year after year. And then even when you're in, with a newspaper, uh, you know, I, I edited Heard on the Street in uh, in Hong Kong and I wrote it once in a while and you had to had to get it out there. There's you can't have a blank piece of paper in the in the paper. You got to you got to have a column. And even editing can be hard and you got, and you really have to concentrate and get it, get the thing to work yeah. on a deadline. So yeah. blogging, you set your own deadlines, really. There's no one there's no editor saying, hey, where is that? And if and if there's no th nothing new on the blog that day, no one's going to yell at you. But at the same time, you can't let it go too long. I find once I have a good idea, it doesn't take that long to uh, to write it. And then I like to let it settle, read it the next day. I have the luxury of doing that. But the uh, the other difference is that you do now have a the blogging is now an addendum to your day job as opposed to when you're in journalism and that is your day job. So, yeah. I, I mean, how do you kind of work it into your schedule? Do you have a regular routine around it? I don't because um, we're, we're a small firm. So sometimes there's just no time. 
Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I'm slammed with work for a few weeks, I just, there's nothing. Or if I don't have that much, and I just can't think of anything that interesting to write, then I, I don't. And I, I think by reframing what's interesting to write about, if I can write about something current that no one's yet written about, even if it's small, I'm going to, I think I've decided to start doing that in order to have more. For example, sitting today on the train on the way in here, I, I looked through Lex's blog and I, and I, I realized that the Canadian emergency has disappeared from the New York Times. It's gone. And I noticed the journal had a story that the government's retreating a little from seizing the bank accounts of all the, the protesters. And now they're saying, no, you know, we're telling, we're, we're not going to do that now. And they're trying to un get them unfrozen. So I thought that's an interesting, and then I read the rules and the rules are sweeping and comprehensive. And on the face of it, they affect American banks with accounts anywhere in the world that could be even indirectly associated to a designated person. I thought that's interesting. So I read a couple of Canadian law firm uh, summaries. The rules aren't very long. And I wrapped out a, uh, an entry today. And I said at the end, I'm not a banking expert. I do due diligence and I try and see around corners. But man, you know, this is, this is something you've got to really pay attention to. And the rules are changing every day. But um, I, I haven't seen anyone write that in the papers like that. So I wrote it. I don't claim to be a bank expert, but I do do due diligence. And I'm good at spotting risk, which you then have to decide how you're going to address. Is it too much for us? With due diligence, you put it all in a bowl and some of the clients will eat it. Some of the clients will say, I can't eat that. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so here it is. Here it is, Canada. You know, you've got these rules changing every day uh, with real, you know, with teeth. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's going to be a, an easier way to find a topic when I happen to have an hour, as I did today. So, you know, you said that uh, early on you decided that you, one of the ways you wanted to distinguish yourself is by being the ethical investigator or, or having taking that approach to investigations. What, what's been the toughest ethics issue you've had to confront in your, in your own work? Uh, I think the, well, the one that's lost me the most business is when I refuse to go get bank accounts that, and people say, well, my investigator last year got me bank accounts. And I, you know, it's, it's so common for people to go and get bank accounts. And in my view, violate the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that I did a whole law journal article. I read the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. I did legal research. I looked at the whole statute. I looked at, I looked at uh, old treasury guidance because I just didn't understand how you can, how you can do this legally. And I have, to, I have to explain to people it's not legal. And they say, oh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for letting us know. And then they just go and probably call someone who will get it for them. It's easy to get. Bank. You just pretend to be the guy. And I have the social security number and mother, mother's maiden name. And it's you, and there are people that will do it for you for not very much money. And in that story, I even called five or six places that offer to get you bank accounts. And I said to them, so, you know, I called from a block line. I said, well, how's this work? How's that legal? And their explanations were crazy. One of them said, well, well we're a part of the SWIFT network, which is just preposterous. You know, there's no account information on the SWIFT network. And this guy's not a banker. What is he? He's some Atlanta PI. He's not on the SWIFT network. And other people say, well, you know, just uh, Google Graham Leach Bliley and you, you get some list of permissible uses on LexisNexis, which is not the Graham Leach Bliley Act. You know, it do, that, do, that doesn't give you account information. It gives you credit header information. So I wrote all this and I'm just, it's one of those things. Uh, I helped an Atlanta Journal Constitution guy, saw the article 
and wrote a front page story about some woman who whose bank account was was accessed by a creditor and the, the bar association in Georgia said it's not a problem not a problem it's against the law it's against federal law and so I I have this fight that that goes on and you know I lose a lot of business uh, but I I it's not a difficult call for me it's just frustrating mm. you know on the on That's the difficult calls if I think it's probably a conflict but I'm not sure but maybe it isn't I just sleep better by saying no I can't I can't yeah. do that I think yeah. that's a conflict. There was one case where, uh, you know, I had I had worked for a guy at my old firm. This was a new matter that 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 someone else wanted to do, and maybe it would have been a conflict. But he was a link to a Russian guy, and I just thought I don't want to get, I don't want to even have to get close to this. And so I just I'll sleep better if I don't do it. But then uh, otherwise, um, you know, the no contact rule is yeah, fairly easy to figure out what. It, what that does, what that is. And, um, and I haven't ever really had a, you know, a gigantic problem with, should I do this or not? Uh, because I, I tend to be very conservative and I'll just say, no, I, ha- I can't pretend to be Bob Jones. That's not my, I can't, I can't pretend to be the New York times. And I had, you know, I've had people say, could you just do that? And I say, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think I, I lose business that way. And that's, it's difficult to lose business, but you got to stay alive, you know, and think long term. So that's, I'm happy in the end. That's what I did. Yeah. You got to be able to sleep at night. All right. My, my last question is, uh, so you've been blogging for more than a decade now. You were a journalist for a long time before that. Uh, what's your top tip for a successful blog? Uh, make it interesting. You know, I, I, I trained, I mean, when, when we were blogging, I had, I had full-time employees for a while. I don't now. And so I'm, and they used to, they used to uh, write on the blog and some of them were better at it than others. Um, and I would say to them, they, they, uh, some of them had been court clerks. They were very smart. They, they were used to drafting judicial decisions and commercial claims, uh, you know, commercial court. And they would write the blog like a, like a decision, you know, and the interesting stuff in a decision is never at the top. It's buried down. First, they tell you why they have jurisdiction in this case. And then they tell you all the, you know, the posture and uh, it was appealed. And then finally you get to, and he said that she did this, but we say no. And here's, here's why. And so I said, put all that at, to- at the top. And I, and I, my advice is the same as it is for, for journalists. My, my uh, reporters at the journal would, would say, well, I don't know how to start the piece. I don't know what my lead is. I said, well, what would you tell me the, the story is? Well, the story is about this you know, a guy who was accused of being extremely greedy, but in the end, he did the right thing and he saved his company. Well, that's a good lead. I would want to read about that. Put that in the lead. Sometimes the lead is what you would say to your editor in trying to pitch the story. And uh, a lot of people, especially lawyers who have, you know, read hundreds and hundreds of boring, badly, not everybody's Judge Posner, you know, who, right, or right. Frank uh, Easterbrook. I mean, there's guys, those guys are fun to read, but a lot of judges are not fun to read. And um, and you have to write, if you could write like Easterbrook, write like Easterbrook and make it one of his decisions because his decisions are great. Uh, they read beautifully. Whether or not you agree with all of them, they're fun to read. So make it fun. Make it interesting. That's what I say. Don't bury the lead. Don't bury the lead. Well, you know, I had a, a, a college wonderful college professor who told us one day, read, read pages 20 to 40 and then 45 to 80. And somebody said, well, what about 40 to 45? He says, well, you can read those if you want, but you don't have enough time to do everything in life. So you might as well, I'm giving you a gift. I'm telling you, you don't have to spend 
the time to read these five pages. So not everybody is going to have the time to read all of your blogs all the time. And the chances are, yeah, at the Wall Street Journal, our hearts used to sink because we would spend six months on one of those front page, huge, beautifully researched stories. And a study came in that only 6% of the readers turned the page, turned to the jump, you know, and after you spend half your half a year doing that. So journalists sometimes think, uh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm reading, I'm writing this for the ages, it's going to affect a lot of lives. And and then in, at Bloomberg, where I worked, you they would say, no, no, eight people read your story yesterday. But it's okay, because one of them held a million dollars of the paper that you were writing about. So that's good. You were serving your client. That's fine. So, you, just, you know, if it's not interesting, you're not going to have as many readers. And yeah. so uh, it can't hurt. Put, put it that way, it can't hurt to make it interesting. Right. It'll probably help, and it, and it can't hurt. Well, Philip, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. It's been really uh, interesting hearing about what you do and about your blogs. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. It was fun. We have been talking with Philip Siegel, who has uh, The Ethical Investigator at TheEthicalInvestigator.com and The Divorce Asset Hunter at DivorceAssetHunter.com. He's also author of the book, The Art of Fact Investigation, Creative Thinking in the Age of Information Overload. This has been episode 61 of This Week in Legal Blogging. You can find all of our past episodes at LexBlog.com slash T-W-I-L-B, which, of course, is an abbreviation for this week of legal blogging. All the shows are there or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find them all there as well. And I hope you'll uh, add a review uh, if you enjoy listening to this. On behalf of myself and everybody at LexBlog, this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.